0: everybody. Uh, This is Opinion Science, the show about the science of our opinions, where they come from and how they change. I'm Andy Luttrell. And, you know, this is a very good, uh, it's going to be a very casual episode. Um, There will be parts of what I say (laughs) that may not be quite as polished as otherwise. Um, But I I just wanted to round out the year with kind of a look back at the first year of this podcast. So back in April of 2020, I started Opinion Science. I I had wanted to do a psychology podcast for a long time. I'd been listening to podcasts for forever. Um, I, I tell people this and they go, okay, but when did you actually start? And I, I've, I want to say 2005 would have been when I first started listening to podcasts. I remember very distinctly being in high school and discovering podcasts. And this was back when it was not easy <laughs> to access podcasts. There weren't a lot of them out there. You had to go on iTunes, find them, download them, sync it up to your mp3 player and you could only hold on to a few at a time because they were so long but yeah it's a, a medium that i've loved for a long time and have always been interested in discovering new podcasts and i've also always been interested in science communication and spreading psychology to people who aren't living and breathing psychological science every day and I just finally figured out what I wanted to do. I figure, okay, we're going to do a show about opinions and persuasion because that's the kind of stuff that I do. And it'll be mostly interviews, but some of the times we'll do some sort of special episodes. Um, and I ordered, I think, my microphone <laughs> and all the stuff I needed in uh, February, late February 2020. And uh, well, I don't need to tell you what happened, but the world came crashing down. And so. Even though lots of podcasts have emerged in COVID times, this was a podcast that I was ab- about to do anyway, <laughs> and it just so happened that it was a it was a reasonably good time to start just because I had some extra time and I was at home and um, gave me a reason to talk to people. And it really has been a cool opportunity over this difficult year of not being able to see people as much or go to conferences or do these sorts of things. Still to get to talk to people and, and you know, uh, hear about the work that they're doing, meet new people, catch up with old friends. The impetus for it was pretty simple. It has grown and and the show continues to grow. And so if you like the show, tell people about it, post about it, share episodes, uh, all the kind of stuff that would really help out. But nevertheless, I wanted to make kind of a year-end retrospective, looking back at the kinds of things that have happened on this show over the past year, since the, the first episode back in April. And lots of podcasts will do a best of episode where they pick clips from their favorites or fan favorites or the episodes that have been the most impactful. And I had a really, <laughs> a really difficult time settling on clips to use for a show like that because... Even though I was learning how to do this the whole time, um, you know, each episode <laughs> is a little bit different in in the way that I approach things, and I'm sort of settling now into a rhythm that I think is is good. But it means that each and every episode is one that I really hold dear <laughs> in in a certain way. And so to say like well, these are the good ones and and the ones that aren't in the best of those are the bad ones, just is crazy. So if you loved an episode this uh, this year in 2020 and it's not on this particular best of episode don't feel (laughs) alarmed or disappointed uh i i just i didn't know what to do so instead my approach was to go back over the 2020 episodes and pick out moments that either were personally meaningful or, or have something of a story behind them and then also pick moments that give an idea of what this show is about and the places that it can go. I, I think we, even though sometimes I feel a little constrained by the topic <laughs> that you go, oh, are, are we going to run out of stuff to say? You know, the list of ideas and people to invite keeps growing. So I don't think that's the case. Um, and, and I think it's because I try to cast a pretty wide net in terms of what is um, appropriate to, to talk about under the guise of... Opinion science. And so this episode also, uh, the clips that I'm going to share make that point pretty well, that that we kind of can go lots of different directions. But at the end of the day, really the heart of this podcast is still to understand what are people's opinions about all sorts of things, including uh, political topics, social issues, consumer products, brands, social groups, that kind of stuff, right? What are those opinions Where do they come from, right? How do people form those opinions? How do we express those opinions? So we'll see a little bit of this uh, in this episode, but like, you know, if I want to explain myself to you, how would I do it? How do I express it? How does it show up in my behavior? And then also really how do they change, right? Through persuasion or other lived experiences, how do our opinions shift over time? So that is still the the general goal of the show is to explore topics like that. And in this best of episode, uh, I'm going to shut up pretty soon and, <laughs> and jump into the actual clips. So the the first clip that I want to share is from episode one. I just figure, yeah, got gotta start with episode one. Episode one uh, was with my friend Jake Teeny. Uh, We were friends from grad school. We were in the same lab uh, getting our PhDs at the same institution, doing similar kinds of research. We've collaborated on stuff in the past. um, And he's also really interested in science communication. He's had this blog about psychology for years. And I just thought he would be a good guinea pig <laughs> to, to try this experiment with. So he was the first, I, I thought, I don't know. I don't know how the technology here works, but I know that Jake will be forgiving <laughs> if I end up having to, to trash the episode. But luckily I didn't and, and had a really fun conversation with him uh, to kick off the podcast. So I'm going to just kind of play a clip show you where the show started i think this is a special moment for me and things have evolved a little bit since the way that i did things at the time but i still i still think this was a fun conversation and and, uh, still worth checking out so a good place to start if you're new to the show but here's a quick clip of jake teeny talking about the research in psychology on word of mouth
1: Kind of the original focus of word of mouth was on whether or not it was impactful. And the reason that this was often the focus was because it was very easy to study in the lab. You could just give people a message and see whether it was impactful. Today, the real kind of trend in word of mouth research is trying to figure out, well, why and when do people engage in word of mouth and spread word of mouth? Because, you know, as I was saying earlier, marketers really don't understand how to influence it. So they're trying to get a better understanding and how to promote it or, you know, make the buzz happen. Um, so much more research has focused on the antecedents to word of mouth rather than the consequences. And that's generally where you see the research heading.
0: And, and so what does that say? This is a good time to start talking about why, why do we do this? <laughs> why would I care? And I, I've seen yeah. you as a little bit of a background. I've seen you give a talk where you, took a screenshot of something I posted online <laughs> as, <laughs> as an example of word of mouth. Um, mm-hmm. So why did I do that? Why was I compelled to share with the world some, some product that I liked?
1: Well, I'm sure it was a very compelling reason and motive <laughs> that you did it for. Um, but yeah, oh man, there's so many different reasons um, people engage in word of mouth. And in addition to the difficulty of studying in the lab before kind of computers and digital media, it was just hard to study what people talked about. Um, there has also been a difficulty in trying to identify the very diverse set of motives that underlie people's uh, reasons for engaging in word of mouth. There there have been some attempts uh, by researchers to try and categorize it. So, you know, they'll say uh, a big part of word of mouth is impression management. So we talk about brands and purchases to make ourselves look good. Uh, A big part of it is emotion regulation, so trying to make ourselves feel better after bad or good information. Um, Sometimes we want to persuade others. Sometimes we want to bond or connect with others, you know, if both people like the same brand or something like that. So there's really a large number uh, of reasons why this happens. And now we're kind of getting enough data that it can be organized into a more systematic uh, depiction.
0: But So mostly what I'm hearing from you is that it's selfish, right? Most of those motivations that you were talking about are like, it's all about me. Am I going to look cool? (laughs) Am I going to make friends? Do I get to say what I think is important? Has there been any interest in like, I don't know, call it altruistic word of mouth? Like people are just truly motivated to say, this will make your life better. So it's my duty to tell you (laughs) about this product that exists.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, I, I, there actually has been less work on that. Um, but that is definitely a motive that drives people's, uh, intentions to engage in word of mouth. In fact, uh, there was a recent paper looking at how, uh, social closeness, so how close you are interpersonally with the target of your word of mouth impacts word of mouth. And what they find is that when you're speaking word of mouth to distant others, uh, you're more likely to talk about positive things because that makes you look Hmm. good positive talking about positive stuff makes us look better but when it comes to people we're really close to we're actually more likely to share negative word of mouth with them because we want to help them we want to protect them from bad Hmm. purchases or bad brands so the the motive is definitely there but it is overwhelmingly shadowed by kind of the perspective that we want to enhance ourselves or make ourselves feel better
0: So in addition to getting to talk to people I already know, like Jake, who's been a friend for a long time, one of the cool things about this show, even though, I mean, in the first, certainly the first a handful of episodes, it was all people that I already knew, already had <laughs> some some relationship with. And I, I've loved to have people on since then who who I also uh, know and, and hear about their work and, and the stuff that they're doing. But one of the other cool things about this show is the opportunity to meet new people and, and really even to discover new people that I probably should have known <laughs> before, but for one reason or another, it never happened. Um, and so... You know, some of those are cases where there are people who are doing cool social science research on the kinds of things that I'm interested in, in the in the domain of opinions and persuasion, but who I never was exposed to because there aren't psychologists, per se, Uh, they're political scientists or communication scholars or in some other academic discipline. And, you know, for Reasons, good and bad, those have been siloed off. And so I, I didn't know them. And so when I hear about someone whose work might be interesting, I might take an extra few seconds to actually search them out and read some of their stuff because I know, hey, maybe they could be on the podcast. And this is a, a perfect example. So Alex Kopak is a, a professor at Yale, he's a political science professor. I was talking to Matt Goldberg, who was, uh, um, I think, episode four, he was on this show. Um, we, we were talking. Later on, and and Alex's work came up, um, and I had never heard of him. And so I thought, oh, this is interesting. I'll, I'll look into his stuff. And it was very interesting and cool and made me think about persuasion in ways that I hadn't before. And so I reached out and was excited that he said yes and was willing to come on the show. And so here, here's a quick clip of uh, me referring, actually, to, to my correspondence with him and then a little bit of our conversation after that. So yeah, so when I uh, invited you to be on this show, you said that you'd love to talk about persuasion. It's your favorite topic. And yeah. so, I'm curious, what what is it about persuasion that that gets you so excited as to say it's my favorite topic? That's <laughs> <laughs> So,
2: I get really excited about causality. Causality is the the like this counterfactual thinking is exciting to me and we normally have in political science whether or not you voted is the main causal question that is being answered by experiments right like because it's written down in the red so attitudes are like the next dv that uh we can study experimentally social psychologists have known this forever to bring students into the lab and randomize them well Except for some social psychologists who will remain nameless, uh, randomize them into conditions and then study their effect. So the the effect of arguments on your attitudes is a question that we can answer well. And if you don't do it right, you get the wrong answer. And so that's sort of like the exciting mix for me is that you know everyone has an experience of trying to persuade other people. And they have this like they have this experience of it not working. Like you talk to your uncle at Thanksgiving dinner and it feels like you get further apart, not like you make progress. And it's just an inferential error. If you were to randomly assign whether or not you try to persuade your uncle and then measure his attitudes in those two counterfactual worlds, I promise, I promise that you make progress when you, when you, when you argue with him. <laughs> uh, so that's, that's, that's what's exciting about it, is it? it's counterintuitive. The way that persuasion works.
0: And and I'm hearing also that like, it's just the method is clean. Because one thing that, you know, I, I think sometimes persuasion has been around for so long in psychology that people go, oh, this, we know, we know, we know. But it's like, no, it's so cool that we have these paradigms that are slick and clean. And when you do it right, you get answers. I'm teaching this this class for undergrads where they build a research project. And I'm like, we're all doing persuasion studies because I can show you how to manipulate aspects of a message, measure an attitude at the end and test whether that made a difference. And there is something just sort of nice and pure and clean. And like you say, that sort of connects to people's experiences in, in talking to other people. And persuasion happens constantly.
2: Right, like you're trying to persuade your family members to vote for Biden they're Trump supporters. And you're like, when I try and persuade them, it, it feels like I don't make any progress. Well, imagine that you could like write down the dependent variable of how much on a scale from one to a hundred do you like Biden? I bet you move them just a little tiny bit when you try and persuade them. Like not a lot, but it's in the right direction, even though it feels like it's, we have a aversive response to talking about politics with, with other people
0: so it's interesting to hear you be this hopeful after just reading the new paper where you tested all of these experiments because one of the interpretations that i feel like people come away with is oh you find and i'll ask you to describe this but basically the the gist is you find a very tiny sort of average movement in people's opinions or uh, what wh- i forget what the outcome is wh- when they see these political ads and some could interpret that to be like, well, throw out persuasion because why bother? <laughs> Whereas you're saying, no, 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 that's so important that you're moving the needle even that much. And so you could, you, could you just describe kind of what you did in this enormous, <laughs> enormous yeah, persuasion study and what you think it means?
2: Sure. So I want to give credit to my co-authors, um, Seth Hill and Lynn Vavrick, who, who deserve the kudos for this great design. We've been sort of one at a timing them in political science where we'll do you know, a sample of 500 subjects, we'll do one ad versus the control. And then we try and generalize from this one thing. And Lynn and Seth were like, this is crazy. We need to do all of the ads. And so they got the most important advertisements from the 2016 election in real time as they were coming out each week. They brought in representative samples uh, via this of panel. Randomly assign them to either an insurance ad or seeing that that week's ad, and measured who you're going to vote for and how much do you like each of the candidates. So like a favorability scale. This design is so refillable, right? It's like an episode of The Simpsons. You can just <laughs> you, can, you can put you can just put any ad into this design over and over and over again, and we can just find out. As opposed to like just just to contrast this with the focus group approach. Like with a focus group, what are you doing? You're taking 10 people and then you're asking them for their like, how much they like the ad. I have no interest in how much you like my ad. The only thing I care about is whether it moves favorability or not. So it turns out that Republicans really don't like Democrat ads and Democrats really don't like Republican ads, but they nevertheless are persuaded a little bit in the direction of those things. So we have to separate out this affective response. I give a negative evaluation of the advertisement. That's not the point. The point is, did it change your vote choice? And so what we find is that averaging over all of them, they move favorability one-twentieth of a scale point on a one-to-five scale in the right direction. Okay, so one-twentieth of a scale point on a one-to-five scale is a very small average movement. We move people 0.7 percentage points. So not a full percentage point, but a 0. 0.7 percentage points on vote choice. So that like makes you that much more likely to vote for the advertising candidate. So then the question is, okay, so we have these very, very, very small effects. The next question out of everybody's mouth is, well, is it different for different ads? Is it different for different people? Is it different over different points in the campaign? And so our article evolved to try and assess heterogeneity in this small average effect so this is where i feel like i lose people like you're telling me persuasion is small great and then you're saying it's not heterogeneous (laughs) it's small
0: always
2: (laughs) it's just small in fact the editor of the journal emailed me the night before it was going to press and i said um you know the word small is in your title Two times, did you mean that? And I was like, yes, I did,
0: in fact, mean that. (laughs) It's a bad joke, but it was a joke and I meant it. Another example of getting to meet someone whose work I should have known about before but didn't for for whatever reason is Dana Young. So it's just a case where on Twitter I, I sort of came across something that she said and I looked up her work and I was like, oh, she has this book out on. Uh, political satire and persuasion called Irony and Outrage. And so I just said, oh, I'll read the book. Sounds like something I'd be into. And I was reading it. And I was like, this is great. <laughs> like, And this is a person who's been doing research on humor and persuasion, using the kinds of theories that I'm super familiar with. And so this was one where I was like, oh, how cool would it be to talk to this person and, ha- and have her on the show? And once again, super excited that she said yes, and, and really was one of the... just a very cool uh, episode to me so here's a quick clip of dana talking about work on humor and persuasion uh including what do we make of it can we use humor persuasively by the way in the episode with dana young she talks i I ask her some question and she's like oh i'm actually working on a ted talk about that i was like oh okay (laughs) wow um and 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 about a month later, maybe a couple months later, the TED talk actually came out. So uh, I'll put a link in the in the show notes so that you can follow up on some of the work that she's done in this uh, domain, and and you can watch her TED talk, her pandemic era TED talk. One of the things also that makes it slippery is that humor can be lots of different things. So so you've been able to sort of look at different kinds of humor. So my my hard hitting question for you uh, to kick off the work that you do is just, what's a joke? Like what? what? Yeah. So, and, and so I bring this up mostly because, uh, so I listened to you, you did an interview with Ezra Klein uh, a little bit ago, and there was a point at which you sort of offhandedly said, a joke is blah, 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 blah. And he was like, what? <laughs> is that? Is that? And so it's like a very technical version of like how we define jokes. And I, the juxtaposition of that, I always think is funny. So from your perspective, the way that you approach this, wh- what do you think a joke is?
3: So the way that I define humor, it's very broad. It is Generally speaking, I I find it very hard to find examples that do not fit this, okay? It is two intersecting frames of reference or schemas or mental models that when they come together, either through a visual or a text, in order to make sense of those two things, a leap has to be made to reconcile those things. And that leap has to be made on the part of the audience. So in so doing, you're activating something, usually from long-term memory, something that maybe you don't have right there. And if it's super easy to get, you're not going to get a huge laugh. It's a, if it's too hard to get, you're not going to get a big laugh. But there's a sweet spot in the middle where it takes you a second and then you get it and then it makes sense and then there's a chuckle. Now, where this works very easily in terms of mapping it, which I have my students do in class with Venn diagrams, you map it in the context of like, like a punchline oriented late night joke or a knock knock joke where there's a read in, right? There's the lead up, usually it's like, well, today Donald Trump went to such and such a place. And then there's the second piece of the text, which doesn't necessarily make complete sense. And then in order for you to get the chuckle, you contribute something.
0: Uh, he- hello, this is me. Um, when when I listened back through our conversation, I realized that an example of this might clarify what we're talking about. So I just went on YouTube and looked for uh, examples of late night political jokes that, that might fit the format that we're talking about here. So here's Stephen Colbert on his late night show delivering one of his monologue jokes from earlier this year on Martin Luther King Day.
4: Both the president and the first lady noted the day on Twitter. Melania's tweet was short and sweet. Together, we honor Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Hashtag MLK Day. She really relates to Dr. King's message, especially the part about wanting to be free at last.
0: <laughs> oh my okay, so maybe not you. a gut buster, but here's a case where the audience would have to bring their own knowledge to bear on the joke. Why would Melania resonate with the free-at-last message? Well, you'd have to bring in prior knowledge that people have surmised that Melania feels trapped in an unhappy marriage to Donald Trump. So, altogether, this simple little joke presents a juxtaposition between our understanding of Melania Trump and our understanding of Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous speech. And we, as the audience, have to see the connection ourselves. And that's the joke. It also has another element that Dana has written about, which is that the juxtaposition also implies a judgment or an opinion. It invites the audience to see Donald Trump as a bad husband or, or just remember associations that have been made in the past uh, about Donald Trump being a bad husband, all of which would fit with Colbert's typical negative characterization of Trump. OK, so th- that's a lot of analysis for a quick little joke, but I, I think it highlights more specifically, what it is that we're talking about. Got it? Okay. All right. Back to the conversation.
3: Now, that's easy to sort of map out. Where it's a little harder is in the context of irony. Because an irony, like all the stuff that Stephen Colbert always did on the Colbert Report, his entire character was done in sort of this ironic persona. He said the opposite of what he meant. So the incongruity there, the juxtaposition between those competing schemas, it's not as obvious as it is in a late night joke, because what he does is he gives you only one of the schemas. You then have to, in your own mind, juxtapose it with what you know he actually believes. And then the leap is sort of exposing why it is that the things that he's saying in character of a conservative pundit are preposterous or hypocritical. or And it it invites us to ask, um, why can't things be different? Or what should be versus what is? That's very different, right? But it's still, at its heart, there is this juxtaposition of these two competing frameworks. Now, when you're talking about another kind of humor, which we've had to deal with more, well, I have had to deal with more in my own writing of late insult humor. Hmm. Trump makes a lot of of insulting comic comments. Now, not everyone finds them funny, but a lot of people do. So then the question is, okay, is my definition of humor so all-encompassing that it actually can account for insult humor? And I'd say the answer is yes, because the ask with an insult joke, when he uses like sleepy-eyed Joe or like little Marco for Marco Rubio, it is not a huge leap. It's not as hard as reconciling two things that are completely at odds with each other, but there is a leap to make because when he says little Marco, you do need to be like little, why is he calling him little? Oh, okay. He's short. There is something missing. And the the juxtaposition is it's a hyperbolic juxtaposition. So there is the reality that he's stating, which is that Marco Rubio is short. And then there's what he's actually saying, which is this huge overstatement of it. And you then need to, Kind of bring that together to understand the argument that he's making. It's not complicated. And in fact, my favorite research of late looks at the different sort of cognitive activity that's required by those kinds of jokes, and it's not a lot. <laughs> not a lot. But I, I'd still say, at its heart, there's still something shared across those kinds of um, texts.
0: Yeah, and it seems like by this definition, the joke—you can't—it just—it doesn't wash over you, right? You have to show up. As an audience member, you have to show up and be a participant. It's not a joke unless the audience is there, which is sort of like a very philosophical uh, approach, right? Is is a joke a joke if there's no audience there?
3: And you know what? A a really tangible sort of expression of this is that comedy does not work in in the heat, okay? (laughs) Comedy club, and people are kind of like laid back, and they're like, oh, I'm so hot comedy literally does not work in the heat. So Dave Letterman, I think, you know, there's a rumor that he used to keep his studio at 54 degrees or something. We have the same issue in our theater at comedy sports, where it's like, you got to make sure that if it's a summer night, you make sure that that air conditioning is cranking because you (laughs) want people laid back. You want them physically leaning forward, ready to be in with you to be able to participate not like get up on stage, although they do with improv, but to be able to mentally participate, to engage in the jokes that are being made. You know, I, I, I bet if you ask any stand up comic,
0: they feel they feel the same. And and it makes me a little worried about how we're going to respond to COVID related restrictions. I mean, that that's something that's demolished live entertainment. And I know comedians, if, you, if you've ever done a show outside, too, it's the same sort yeah. of thing where it's just yeah. like you're not present, right? You're, there's so many other things to do. The sound doesn't carry. You're hot. You're uncomfortable. But those are the kinds of things that we're having to do these days.
3: Yeah, that's <laughs> exactly right. You know, I, I as soon as I was thinking about the uh, difficulty in a hot room, I also thought about how the uh, stand-up comics always say that the White House correspondence Dinner is the worst gig to play. Part of that is because the room is just so big and so echoey and people are distracted and But there's also this sort of um, status-seeking and posturing that goes on with that crowd. And I'll tell you what, a crowd that is status-seeking and posturing is not going to play vulnerable enough to allow themselves to be moved by humor. I mean, all of these things to me are fascinating and they're all lines of research in and of themselves.
0: To shift the mood a little bit, This year, you know, 2020 was really in the shadow of the coronavirus pandemic, obviously, for, for the whole year. But in the summer, there was there was another moment that was really important, which was the killing of George Floyd and the protests that resulted in the national conversation, the global conversation about race and racism, um, how we think about it, how we deal with it, what to do about it. And it was... You know, for one reason or another, you can actually check out the episode 10 with Dion Hawkins. We talk a little bit about like, you know, what is it about this moment that really got people to pay attention to something that has been something that has been worth talking about and dealing with for a long, long time. But this summer was a moment where it just really captured people's attention. And it, it seemed like something that that should appear on this podcast in some way that that should be discussed on this podcast, because this podcast is about. You know, opinions and attitudes and the way we think about the world and we think about people as good or bad or moral or immoral. And, you know, a lot of times when we talk about prejudice, we're talking about it like an opinion, right? It's just my opinion of this particular social group. Do I, I think they're good? Do I think they're bad? Um, and that might shape the way I treat them. But there's the the, the summertime conversation and the conversation that it really yeah, you know, the long history of conversation that it reflected says, you know, that's maybe part of racism. That's part of prejudice. Are these you know individuals that live inside of a particular person? But there's something deeper and institutionalized and systemic about the way that these things work. And so, I I really was trying to find someone to come on the podcast and talk about that perspective in in the context of that cultural moment and. This episode, so Dr. Fia Salter is, is the person who I reached out to and was, you know, it, it was a hard time to ask someone to take time out of their day and talk about race relations um, to a, a white guy who's trying to have a podcast. So I totally acknowledge that and, and wanted to be very respectful of that. But uh, Dr. Salter was t- totally cool uh, and and willing to come on and and. I thought did a really nice job summarizing this perspective on on racism as a system. And so uh, I'm going to play a clip here. It 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 quickly became, I think, the most downloaded episode of this podcast, at least at the time, for sure, and I, and I think is still true, um, which is great. Uh, if if this is the thing that people are are latching onto, then then that is fine with me. So I'm going to jump now into a conversation with Dr. Salzer. First, she's going to uh, briefly give a, a very nice metaphor. I think that helps us think about racism as a system and what that means for how we address it, and then also talks about some research that I only discovered because. I was looking into her for this podcast, which I still think is a very interesting and unique and powerful way to use social science methods to understand the kinds of things that are really relevant to how we deal with um, race in, in, in the United States and the world more broadly. I'm thinking about the way that systemic perspectives would shape how we advocate for change, right? So in the wake of the last couple of weeks, as many people are tuning into these conversations, but I mean, they, they didn't start a week and a half ago. In what ways might a systemic view change the way you think advocacy is most effective?
5: So I, I, could, I can say something a bit more more broad in terms of what I believe the implications of what we talked about earlier, individual approach or individual bias perspective, kind of focusing on beliefs, versus focusing on the system. So if we focus on the individual and the beliefs, then the job of intervention becomes trying to change individual hearts, individual minds, trying to convince them of their wrongdoing and trying to bring them around to your perspective. And and there's some folks who do interracial dialogues and doing that kind of work that's really effective and that's awesome. But what a systemic perspective suggests is that you could change the individual but they're going to be right back in the cultural context or right back in the systemic context that facilitated those beliefs in the first place so if you don't address what the system what's going on in the system then you could change the individual heart change the individual mind but what's to sort of sustain that mode of thinking or sustain that way of, of approaching and so in the in my classroom i like to talk about racism and race and those ideas as fish in fish bowls, right? So when you think about the fish, he swimming around in the water. And let's say that in this case, racism is the water. And we could all agree that racism is toxic. And the solution to giving the fish the best chance of survival is not to take him out of the tank, clean him off, and then put him back into the tank, right? what you want to do is clean the fishbowl, right? You want to ad- address all of the things that are happening in, the, in that fish's context or in that fish's environment and so that, so that they could have a healthy, longer existence. And so I think that's kind of how our approaches to racism has been, sort of thinking about taking the fish out of water, cleaning them off, trying to convince his little heart or his little mind, then putting him back into the toxic water. And so if you don't do some work to address what's going on, in the environment that that's not going to do. Now, that's not to absolve individuals, right? Because fish can also do some polluting of the water. And so it's really a dynamic between making sure you're engaging both aspects of this dynamic. In that study, I went into Kansas City schools and during February for Black History Month and essentially talked to folks and took pictures of their black history month displays and Kansas city, at least at that time, like many American cities are highly racially segregated. And so the schools in those communities are highly racially segregated. And so what I observed while being there is that black history month displays in predominantly black schools were doing something a little different than the black history month displays in predominantly white schools In predominantly black schools. And in predominantly white schools, there were some similarities in that, you know, famous first. So there are certain African-American individuals that are often highlighted during Black History Month. You all could probably recite it with me. Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, some famous inventors. Uh, Some schools would also do athletes. Oprah appeared a couple of times. But Outside of those individual famous first African-American achievers, there were also some differences in whether or not the schools actually addressed racism or uh, linked those folks to larger civil rights movement or even broached the topic of slavery versus what happened in some white schools is in some cases they didn't even necessarily reference Black History Month at all. So it was more of a, let's celebrate all of our diversity during this time. And so after documenting those differences, we wondered what is the consequence, right, of thinking or being exposed to one version of Black History Month where you might have some of that history embedded versus being exposed to a version of Black History Month where it's primarily celebratory, right, just African-American achievers. And what we found is when we brought those materials into the lab, that those folks who were exposed to Black History Month materials that were more critical, mentioned racism, for example, were more likely to facilitate perceiving racism, both individual and systemic racism in society, versus those that were more celebratory in their their orientation. What we also found though, is that we asked people how much they liked those different kinds of displays And our white American participants didn't really like the displays that talked about racism or brought those issues up. They liked the, let's celebrate our common humanity, let's celebrate diversity, let's maybe not even mention that it's Black History Month kind of representations.
0: And so- Can I I interject just a second? So this is the one where you were showing actual photos from different schools, right? Yes. And so- Just to be clear, these are are white participants who don't realize that some of those pictures are from predominantly black schools and others are from predominantly white schools. And yet they're saying, well, these ones, I like these ones. I'm not as big of a fan of Mm -hmm. those other ones. And it just so happens that the ones that they're preferring are the ones that are from their own cultural context.
5: Yes. Thank you. Exactly. And so, you know, when I talk about racism being a system and how it's also embedded in our preferences and selections, right? So it's not only that they prefer the materials that come for their own cultural context. They're preferring the representations that don't necessarily increase or change their perceptions of racism itself. Um, And then we do a later study where we look at, um, we kind of tease apart the celebratory versus um, critical history, look at perceptions of racism, and then look at support for policy. So participants who were in the condition where they were exposed to critical knowledge, more likely to perceived more racism and the more racism they perceived the more likely they thought um supported anti-racist policies
0: which you know the the, the conclusion is is not all that hopeful, right because what you're saying is that it's a it's a self-perpetuating machine right where these these communities are are giving a nod right to to these sorts of issues and topics but in a way that is i think you might say sanitized or watered down mm-hmm. and that we now can show doesn't do much right, but but if 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 you show those white participants the displays from predominantly black schools, then you're saying that that do, that did move the needle more, mm-hmm. right? Yes. It's just that the 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 images they're seeing more don't don't do it.
5: Yeah, there's been a few conversations, just I guess <laughs> on Twitter <laughs> or social media, right, talking about comfort and engaging with conversations that make you uncomfortable or you know, discussing topics that make you uncomfortable. And so, you know, one lesson or one conclusion you might take from that work is like, oh, well, the Black History Month displays that addressed racism made folks uncomfortable. That's why they didn't like it. But we also suggest that you don't stop there, right? Just because it might make folks uncomfortable or that they may not like it doesn't mean you couldn't still have positive consequences downstream. And so just because something makes you uncomfortable doesn't mean that that's a, a bad thing. And I would, you know, I, I try to tell my students that it's in those places of discomfort where you experience growth, right? You, you're forced to re-examine and to challenge yourself, and you may come out thinking the same thing, but you may see things in a new light. And so I think, right, only reproducing things that make you comfortable or that you like, right, that that doesn't necessarily change the conversation or may not provide the same space for growth in the way that dealing with some of these uncomfortable topics or uncomfortable content
0: might. And, and yeah, you try to bring these questions up and people are happy to say, oh, this is yucky. I don't want yes. <laughs> to talk about it. And then if that happens, then, then, then what do you do? So I, I'm curious where the idea for the, this is a while ago, it sounds like that this study started. Is there something about Black History Month portrayal that seemed like it was the road into to talking about this because I think you would probably say that, that it doesn't stop at Black History Month in schools, right? That this is really one reflection of a more general yeah. thing. But well, what is it about that? Where did the idea come from is really all, uh, all I'm asking.
5: Yeah, well, I'll, I will say that um, when I went into the schools, I didn't go in with the hypothesis that they would be, you know, different in this way. I didn't know. I honestly went in as I suppose as a cultural psychologist to understand what was there. Um, Now, there is a body of research and um, conversations that I'm involved in at this time. That when we talk about the Marley hypothesis, for example, right, we have this history quiz, right? And I would say that the things that come from that history quiz are things or facts that I would have heard on black radio. Right, so it's the question of where might people get this knowledge um, that may be more critical or more sanitized, or you know, reference c- certain things or or not discuss certain things. And so, thinking about those predominantly black spaces as sources of potential rich information was kind of one way of sort of thinking about it. But yeah, it, it didn't go in. I, I didn't go in in the same ways that maybe graduate students are trained in which you would have a hypothesis and that's not the kind that's not the kind of work that uh this is and that's not the kind of work that came of that it it was really i i love that you said uh anthropological and that you know i think sometimes when you're doing the groundwork you have to be open to what you might see and what you might find and that different cultural spaces can come with that knowledge and and to be honest that kind of model isn't very different from some other cultural psychological work that you might find that happens to be in social psychology as well.
0: To keep on the theme of opinions as they relate to social opinions in terms of like my feelings about other people and particularly other groups, as a contrast to systemic racism and systemic views of, of privilege and prejudice, implicit bias is, is something that psychologists have been talking about now since the, the late 90s as a, a form of prejudice that lives kind of the, the claims have ranged from unconsciously to automatically um, all sorts of we, we can we can quibble about how we define <laughs> implicit bias another time. But, but you've probably heard of it, implicit bias. And one of the real key figures in, in the creation of implicit bias as a field of study is Masrin Banashi. She's someone who's really been, uh, uh just a <laughs> grand figure in social psychology. And so I reached out knowing that, like, uh, I don't know if if this is something that she would be willing to do. She certainly talked about implicit bias constantly in different media outlets. So maybe this is not not her her cup of tea. And it took a little bit of back and forth. And there were some scheduling issues. But I was just so excited <laughs> that I got to talk to her. And she was so gracious with her time to to tell all these stories about her work and the history of it and where it's going and and where it came from. Stories that, that haven't really been uh, a feature of the kind of media interviews that she's done before. So super grateful um, to, to Dr. Badaji for talking about those sorts of things. And so I want to jump quickly uh, at this point into part of that conversation where I ask her, I really start by just asking her what the IAT is. And the IAT is an implicit association test. This is a test that they've developed and it's often computerized and it's a way that they use like how quickly you respond to stuff on a computer screen to tell them something about your degree of implicit bias. It's a kind of test that maybe you've taken, actually probably you've taken sometime online. It's used constantly in research and she was on, on the original team who developed it. So I asked her, you know, hey, what is the IAT? And it was this moment, this great moment where she said, well, how about I tell you my experience taking it for the first time?
6: Tony Greenwald sent me a program and didn't say very much about what to do. But we used to exchange different uh, protocols and try out different tasks because we had uh, published, uh, in publishing the psych review paper, uh, the Implicit Social Cognition, Review paper that paper ended by saying, you know we 're trying to make a case for this concept by relying on effects already existing in the field. This is a theoretical argument for this for this idea, but really what 's going to be needed is is a method so Tony more than me, I would say for sure, was digging and poking at looking at different kinds of methods, and then in comes this little program um, and i I take the I I take the test and what appears is a name at the time we were using names because we I don't think the program could handle pictures. So um, a name like Tyrone uh, or Jamal would show up or a name like Tom or Joshua would show up and I would have to classify them. Use the E key or the left side of the keyboard to respond to black names. Uh, and the right side of the key, use the I key on your keyboard to respond to white names. Super easy. If I see a name like Josh or whatever, Steve or any one of your standard um, Anglo-Saxon Judeo-Christian names, I'm supposed to um, hit the one button. And if I see a name that comes from uh, a subset of black people, then uh, to distinguish it from the, the names that were clearly different, then I press the left key. How hard can that be? Super easy. And then I do the same thing now with words. And now the same key that I would use. Remember, E was the key for for black names. Now whenever a bad word pops up, a word like poison or devil, I'm supposed to hit that same key. Um, And then when it's a good word, like love or peace, I have to press the right key. Easy. I can do that. Now the program says, just put them together. We'll show you one of four things. A name will pop up that will be clearly either black or white. And then a word will pop up that will be clearly good or bad. Whenever you see a black face or a bad word, press the left key. You've already practiced these. And whenever you see a white name or a good word, press the right key. I do that. And my fingers are flying on the keyboard. And I'm done. I'm done in like 500 milliseconds, and it pops up. And you know, no, no response just told me that my average time was like 535 milliseconds or something. So that felt right. And then the other version comes along. Now you'll switch. Now when it's a black name or a good word, press the E key. When it is a white name or a bad word, press the I key. Okay, that seems like it should be. I mean, I remember this very clearly. I remember starting that task knowing knowing that I would whip through it in the same time.
0: And where were you when you took this? You said you got this from Tony.
6: It was. Yeah, I remember it well. I, was in, in, I lived in a little apartment in New Haven in uh, Connecticut. And I had, I, I, the dining table was my office. And I had put a desktop machine on the dining table. And uh, I, I remember taking it there. And, I mean, all of a sudden, I, I can feel that my heart rate is going up. And my hands have just become completely clammy. And so I pause and I think, okay, just clear your head, go back. And I start, and I can't, I can't do it. Uh, of course I can do it, but much slower and with many more errors if I try to speed up. And then the, in those days we didn't, you know, it was a prototype. So all it did was spat out some number in the 800s or something. <laughs> like that. And so I, my first thought is something is wrong with this test. It can't be this. So, of course, I went where every other person has gone. Uh, It's the order.
0: (laughs) The number of times I've had to tell students (laughs) that that's not an issue. (laughs) Mm
6: -hmm. Yeah. And then, you know, we did work uh, further. In the old days, we didn't have it all taken care of. But now we know that we are wiping out all order effects if there are any. And there are many tests where the opposite order actually produces a bigger effect. Mm. So we know it's not any one order. So I, you know, I can poke around in the program and I can take it in the other way. And no, no, no difference, really. So I know that I just, I'm, I, I think the, the reaction was, I would call it the most transformative day of my life. And it is true that no other single experience has ever had this kind of impact on me. But I I knew that this was incredibly important. So I asked my husband to come and I just say, take, take, take this test. He, uh, our families have had been used to being guinea pigs in these tests because, you know, we're among that very lucky group of scientists where we can be subjects in our own studies. Um, if you're a physicist, you cannot become an atom. Uh, <laughs> to, And if you're most kinds of psychologists who, who know what the study is about, it won't work. So we're like people who are uh, who study optical illusions or something like that because we, too, will show the same effect that our subjects do. So I, you know, strapped him into the chair and said, go. And he finished it. And he said, don't ever share this with anybody in the world, ever. And I, I understood what, what he meant. I, I felt like, yeah, maybe maybe that's what we have to do. We have to just hide this. Um, and then, of course, two seconds later, I knew, oh, we should put this thing on a website <laughs> <laughs> well
0: what, what was the what was the concern
6: you know I think if if, if if this is why I think it's so hard that once you're in quantum physics you know it's very hard to understand what the world would have been with just Newtonian physics but when when you ask that question it's a legitimate question and I love love it because to you it seems like what was the concern <laughs> and you didn't do that kind of thing you didn't do science on race you didn't do you didn't you didn't do that kind of thing you stayed away very far from those kinds of things there was science and then there was politics and this was about politics it seemed and what are we doing with it in the science so there was that but much more than that was the feeling we've discovered something that is important slash scary and then what to do with it and so I think my husband's response was very a very caring one you know my wife's life is about to change if this gets out (laughs) and uh, I I didn't feel that way I didn't feel like we shouldn't share it I knew immediately that this was extremely important I think I took it in the summer and that year 94 we went to SESP and We didn't have laptops in those days. So we took a bunch of playing cards and we made an IAT on playing cards. So we would take each card and on it we would put a name like Tyrone or Josh and then words that were good or bad. So the cards would be divided into four categories. They would have on them good or bad words and then uh, what were distinctively black or uh, names or or, uh, white names. And we would shuffle the deck. We would bring people into our hotel room and we would say okay sort we're going to start a stopwatch sort you know to, to basically we would make them do the iat and when it would come to that second moment i mean most people just would throw the deck of cards on the bed <laughs> and turn away because they could feel that they can't do it and then we would laugh and we would say see you see this and then they would say it's it's not what you think and they would leave the room And then there were some people who were like, I've always known this. I've always, I've been so grateful for those people. Of course I've known this. This is not a shock to me. Yeah, I'm very glad you're showing it, but this doesn't surprise me.
0: Uh, On top of getting to meet researchers that I admire and and catching up with friends of mine who do the same kind of work that I do, another really fun part of doing this podcast is talking to people outside of academia. And this is something that I, I, I would like to do more of in the future, so stay tuned. Hopefully we'll see a little bit more of that. So in addition to talking about the research in social science on opinions and persuasion and all the topics related to it, I was also interested to talk to people whose job is somehow connected to expressing or shaping opinions. So I'm going to play uh, clips from three of these kinds of conversations over the years, some, some a little quicker than others. And the first one is an interview I did with Alyssa Wilkinson, who's a film critic. And I had in the back of my head that film criticism would be an interesting thing to talk about. And at the time, honestly, my uh, impression was that film criticism was really just like, oh, Roger Ebert gave this two thumbs up or whatever. And you go, oh, all right. So it's rating movies. That's what film criticism is. And I quickly learned that film criticism is is quite a bit more than that. But nevertheless, it's still about a a person whose job is to consume the kinds – and I hate hate that I said consume (laughs) – but is to to watch movies – to, to go to these films, think about uh, collections of films that, that a director or writer has done in the past and really think critically about like, how good is it from their particular vantage point? How well does it pull off their aims? And so I asked Alyssa, who's a, a film critic for Vox, I think that is primarily where, where she writes, but she writes, she's written film criticism all over the place, but I asked her, You know, how do you approach doing that? Like what do you actually do in order to watch a movie and distill your thoughts into an evaluation of that picture?
7: You know, it's different for everyone, and I feel like mine has evolved over time, and it probably varies based on the film a little bit too. So there are some films going in where I kind of basically know what's gonna happen in this movie, um, because I know what I'm being sold. It's a certain bill of goods, that's what big parts of the industry um, are created to do is to sell you something you know what you're getting. Um, So I go in and then I kind of watch it. I try to always keep a really open mind about things, but I am kind of watching it to like pick up on what I'm going to need to fill in what it is that I'm pretty sure I'm going to write. Then sometimes it surprises you, um, which is the best feeling. Um, Other times there's a lot of films where you walk in, you have no idea what's about to happen. Um, You have some background. I kind of know what this is about. So I'm like inclined toward or away from the subject matter. I've seen movies by this director before. I am inclined toward or away from the film maybe. Um, And there's no way to go in completely unbiased, although people act like there is. Like you're a human, you have biases. So you bring those into the theater with you. You watch it, you try to set yourself outside of it as much as you can while also acknowledging, like I'm having this reaction because of something. Um, But for what I tell my students and the way I think about it is the first thing and the most important thing that every critic does is start with their emotional reactions and acknowledge them as subjective emotional reactions. And you have to start there. Um, Because if this movie um, didn't make me laugh and was supposed to make me laugh, and you can tell, then I have to first think like... Like, is it me? Right. Because sometimes it is me. <laughs> like I just had a bad day or, um, you know, I th- these jokes don't strike me as funny or maybe it, like maybe sometimes I um, I think like I am not I am I am deficient in empathy in the fact that this movie didn't do anything for me. Sometimes it's because the movie did a bad job, but sometimes it's because it's just not hitting me you know, in the right place. And I think the more movies I watch, the more I recognize that because I'll rewatch a movie I saw a couple years ago and have a completely different reaction to it and realize that the reason I had a completely different reaction is because I'm a different person than I was when I watched it. So that's okay. And I think that um, sometimes critics, film critics rightly get a bad rap for acting like their opinion is the correct opinion rather than an opinion. So I walk out with my emotional reactions. I try to take note of those. This is difficult in a festival kind of context where you've you're seeing four or five movies a day and you need to really remember. Um so you know, you take notes. And then when I sit down to actually write, I think, okay, how did I feel about this movie? And I kind of start from there. And then my job is to figure out why I felt that way about the movie and then make an argument for that. Which means sometimes I might end up arguing that this movie is great and it did nothing for me. Or this movie is terrible and I loved it. Um, (laughs) Or more often it's somewhere in between or, it's great and I loved it or it's terrible or once in a while the answer is this movie is just bad and here are reasons that it shouldn't like it's just bad like it's doing bad things it's bad for people um but the argument I'm making is both supporting my opinion and trying not to say this is the only opinion my hope is that people will you know, maybe they see it and they're like, you hated that movie. How could you hate that movie? Then they read the review and they think, okay, I can see how you could hate that movie. Um, that's really challenging because it's still, like, I'm still sure I'm right. But what I have to remember is I'm right about my opinion. I know that this is the opinion I have, um, but not necessarily that my opinion should be shared by everyone in the universe. So that means that some of the critics I love the most and read the most are people who I have no taste in common with them ever. Like I'm shocked when we like the same movies, (laughs) but I love how they convince me to see their point of view, even if I don't ultimately agree with it. So that's kind of how the process goes for me. And then the last piece of it, which I kind of hate that I have to do this, is to like assign a rating to it. Mm -hmm. And so I do have kind of a mental model where it's like, you know, we have a five star system, two and a half is like, this is fine. (laughs) Right. And below there is like, degrees of something went very wrong here. Five is, I think maybe I give that to like five movies a year tops. And five is like, this is a perfect movie. And there's nothing I can change. And I responded to it. Four and a half often is this is a perfect movie. But I just it's just I can, like something didn't connect with me. And then it kind of goes down from there.
0: Do you find that five-star movies are harder to write the review for? Because you go, there's nothing, I just, I loved it. Yeah. And it was perfect. And I just, what am I going to explain why it's perfect? Mm -hmm. Is it, so is there more of a, in some ways it's sort of strange to say that it's disappointing when a movie's a five-star movie.
7: (laughs) It's intimidating. Like if I walk out and I'm like, ugh, like. Yeah, it's it's a feeling of, like, I don't know how to do this justice, and I'm scared to start. Like, those are the ones I get hung up on the most. They take the longest to write. Um, the easiest reviews are usually four-star reviews for me, for some reason, mm-hmm. where I'm like, this movie is so good. You should definitely go see it. It's important. It's great. Good movie, you know? And that, that movie is kind of the easiest to review, Um, I don't write a lot of pans and the reason largely is that I think that it's bad. (laughs) I think it's, I think it's unnecessary in my case, since I don't work for a trade paper and I don't technically cover the whole industry. I don't need to like destroy someone's career, especially if they're just starting out or they clearly like had a low budget, ran into some snags or something like that. The only time I really feel comfortable or the only time it's worth my time to pan a movie um, is if it's a big blockbuster or something, you know, clearly went awry. And like my review isn't necessarily going to like completely obliterate someone's career, but it might help some people to think twice about a film that they weren't going to think critically about. Um, But I've probably, I mean, I've written a very, the, the one that sticks out that I, I wrote, Uh, probably my first year was about the Emoji movie,
0: which was just- I I read that earlier today and it was a delight.
7: (laughs) And it was, you know, I was just so angry when I left that movie (laughs) and I was angry during it and I wasn't angry going into it because I thought, who knows, like the Lego movie I thought was going to be a catastrophe and it's great, right? That's possible. Um, But I hate this, you know, kind of commodification of every property imaginable in order to make a buck. And I don't like that aspect of the industry at all. So- that's kind of the other side of it pans are really difficult to write because the only thing you can really do is either get really angry or be really funny and I'm not a I'm not a terribly funny writer and I don't really like writing angry things um but even more importantly like for where I am that's not my mandate um if I were working at variety or something it'd be a very different story
0: Another person I talked to was Joe Fuld, who's a campaign manager, a political campaign manager. And I thought, you know, this is a, a job that really requires shaping opinions, right? Like, how do I get my community to, to get behind this candidate who's running for for local office or or bigger offices than that one cool thing i don't have time to put it in here but um i started this by by having a conversation with Pavan preek who is uh running for um oh goodness county probate court judge something <laughs> something like that i forget the title exactly but it was in the midst of, of a real election, and I wanted to get his his take on what it's like to run for some local office. And then, you know, the rest of the episode is a, a conversation with Joe Fuld, who runs, uh, I think they call it the Campaign Workshop. It's a consulting firm for campaigns and also hosts a podcast called How to Win a Campaign, which actually, just FYI, uh, launched a second season recently, which is really cool, where they focus not on getting people elected to office, but but campaigning for ideas, what they call advocacy campaigns. So anyhow, in this quick clip with Joe, I talk, uh, I ask him about like, you know, what do we, what do you actually do (laughs) to run for office? Like, how do you actually get people behind you? Uh, And what are the kinds of things that you have to think about?
8: So uh, part of it is the matchup of who your opponent or opponents are, right? And so really thinking about that, um, another tool we would have you do, and all of these are like, free things, but like homework that you need to do would be something called a Tully message box, which is literally a square. That is, what do we say about ourselves? What do we say about them, our opponent? What do they say about us and what do they say about themselves, right? You'd fill out all those four squares. Let's say you're running in a general election. If you're running in a multi-candidate primary, you would extend the squares out and have all the candidates you're running against and really see what is the contrast? What are the issues that people are going to be running on? And again, this isn't negative campaigning. You really want to be able to define what the difference is and what the choice will be between you and your opposition and know that clearly as a candidate. What is that decision that they're making? Why are you running? Why are these other folks running? And why are you the better choice? And so you'd write that out to really see what the differences are and what are the things from your background that you would want to highlight in running for office.
0: Is a lot of the strategy getting that message to the most people versus making that message perfect? Does that make sense? Does that
8: make sense? I mean, it's, it's a little bit of both, right? I mean, I think, yes, you want to communicate it to the most people. I don't think it has to be perfect, but it has to be good right? I think that it is one of those things that uh, you want to make sure that that message is, you know, when I teach people to run for office, which I do a lot, it's this idea of what we would call the seven C's. And this is something that uh, Peter Fenn and Joel Bradshaw came up with, which is a message needs to be, let's see if I can remember it, clear, (laughs) concise, compelling, contrastive, creative, coordinated, consistent. Did I get to seven? I think I got to seven. Um, So anyway, yeah, there you go. So (laughs) you want to make sure that a message has all of those elements. And yes, volume matters. But if your opponent. And these days, people are pretty well matched as far as resources. And even if they're not, there's still sort of a threshold of you can still outspend somebody and lose if they spend enough to communicate and have a better, clearer message. And part of it is knowing As we get back to the sort of beginning of the campaign, why is the candidate running? And then what are people voting on? What is the decision that they're making? What do they care about? I I like folks to think about that a hopefully voter is going into that voting booth and has a question in their mind that's like, I want a candidate who will, and then answers that with the vote. So who is going to protect my community? help my healthcare, you know, like whatever it is, you want that answer to be the candidate that they're supporting. And so you want to really um, think about that. So volume has something to do with it, but not always. And the other piece, especially when you're running in a presidential year, is that there are going to be a lot of people who go into the voting booth or who vote by mail or who will skip parts of the ballot who will vote for president of the United States vote for us Senate and won't vote all the way down the ballot. So it's not just about making sure people turn out. It's making sure that people care enough about your race and you've given them enough of a reason to care to vote in your race because it's not a given. And in many, many places that voter fall off is the difference between winning and losing in a race
0: and the final clip from someone whose professional job is in the opinion arena is almost a case where the, her job is just so perfectly aligned with the aims of this podcast which is that she's a pollster uh, which means she both runs a, a polling firm where she collects data uh national data from people on their opinions but then also is a reporter to various outlets on what those polling numbers show and so you know, this is someone she was on my list from the beginning. I had done her radio show about a year ago, uh, talking about some research that I had done and looked into to her backstory. And so she has radio shows. She had this long running podcast that people loved. Um, she's a correspondent to to Fox News and, and all sorts of other uh, outlets. Um, she wrote a book called The Selfie Vote, which we talk about a lot in that episode. So she was I mean, she's this public figure and i thought how how cool would it be to talk to someone whose day in day out job is all about polls and understanding polls and talking about polls and i lucked out to be able to talk to her right before the 2020 election so we got to talk about like what are the polling numbers show what are we thinking um anyhow all i'm saying is it's worth listening to that episode i think but in this quick clip just to give you a flavor uh she talks a little bit about her personal backstory getting into this industry and also i think some interesting context for how polling as an industry has changed in recent years
9: when i first started off in the industry if you talked about a pollster who went on TV, you were probably talking about uh, Frank Luntz or Kellyanne Conway, or maybe you were talking about Larry Sabato and kind of lumping him in. But the idea of people going on TV and talking about what research was showing voters were thinking, um, they're just, it it wasn't, it wasn't as robust an industry. And frankly, around that time, I had dabbled in possibly wanting to apply to graduate school and was kind of told that 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 path was frowned upon, that if you went into academia, that going out and trying to promote your analysis in the media was just not completely loved. Um, so I, I thought, well, you know, I, I like that piece of it. I like being able to go on and explain to a wider audience what I think the polls are showing, because in a way, You can argue that being a pollster is like being America's press secretary. If the job of the White House press secretary is to say this is what the president thinks and this is how the president intends to act, um, the job of a pollster is to say this is what America thinks. This is how America intends to act. So I like that piece of it. And it really I I think I can point to a couple of, of key moments when the world of polling analysis became ever more present in our media landscape. The first is the dawn of pollster.com and the subsequent buying of pollster.com by the Huffington Post. So a democratic pollster named Mark Blumenthal had really loved, he was mystery pollster. He loved writing about polling analysis um, and did so at pollster.com. And it became this little interesting niche of the blogosphere back when like blogs were just flourishing um, that that predated even, you know, 538 and Nate Silver and gave a lot of pollsters a place to write. That was the first place that I ever wrote something. I took a chunk of my, my master's thesis about young voters and fashioned it into a piece for pollster.com. And it got mentioned on CNN by James Carville. And I freaked out. I was so (laughs) excited. He, he butchers my, my, the pronunciation of my name in the segment, but it was like, I felt like I had arrived. I was so excited (laughs) that, you know, I didn't know who read pollster.com. If it was, you know, a hundred people or a million people, I suspected it was closer to a hundred, but if it was the right hundred people, maybe that's all I needed to get my message out there about. At that time, I was really focused on young voters. I think the second big inflection point in all this was the dawn of 538 and the great deal of interest people suddenly pay in the world of data journalism. And you had the Vox.coms and then 538 spinning off and then the New York Times launching the upshot. And suddenly an interest in consuming news about polling and consuming this kind of analysis went from niche hobby of political junkies to a much more widespread thing, which suddenly meant there was more demand for people in my profession to go out and tell what we were finding to the public.
0: The last clip that I want to leave you with in this episode is a clip from an episode I did about cognitive dissonance. This was by far the most ambitious (laughs) episode that I undertook this year. It was the kind of thing where, honestly, I had the idea to do it from the moment the podcast started and and little by little started the process of putting the pieces together and it came out in August. It was a long time coming. And what I really wanted to do was take this concept of cognitive dissonance, which psychologists have been doing studies on for years years 60 years i think more than and we know a lot about the ins and outs of what this is we've talked we've debated as a field about what it is and what we can do with it but the public i think thinks about cognitive dissonance sometimes differently than the social psychologists who invented the idea (laughs) talk about it and so i thought this would be a cool opportunity to really break down the science of dissonance or at least what people have done in this area uh, in the past and so it wasn't just an interview with one person, like most of the episodes of this show, or it was interviews with lots of people, clips taken from them, stitched together. I did narration and and other research and I don't know, the music, all this, you know, <laughs> I do this podcast completely by myself. And so, you know, maybe this is par for the course for lots of shows, but this was uh, a real effort. <laughs> I got to tell you, regardless of whether you thought it was good or not, it, it, it took took some time. My point is is not to gloat about the, the amount of time that it took, but to say that I I'm super proud of how it turned out. And really, more than anything, I got to talk to some amazing people. Um so in the clip that you'll hear, I'm I'm gonna talk about kind of the major study from the history of cognitive dissonance, Festinger and Carl Smith's 1959 paper about counter-attitudinal behavior as a way of inducing dissonance. You'll hear all about it in a second. But in order to tell that story, I got to talk to Joel Cooper and Elliot Aronson, two people who have been at the forefront of dissonance research since the beginning. I mean, Elliot Aronson was there at the beginning of this research, um, and he's had this amazing career since then and just, you know wasn't sure if I was going to get to talk to him, but I got to have this amazing conversation with someone who's been in the field for so long, and you can even listen to that full conversation as a bonus episode. So anyhow, to round out this best of episode of 2020, I'm going to play a clip, a reasonably long clip, maybe a little longer than some of the other ones, that really walks us through the early moments of doing studies to test the theory of cognitive dissonance and what those studies told us and why they were controversial. Okay, the first example of dissonance we'll consider is a now-classic experiment by Leon Festinger and Merrill Carlsmith. The study came out in 1959, after Festinger's book on dissonance, and after some of the original studies. But this, this is the study that put dissonance on the map. As Joel Cooper puts it, My view is that Festinger and Carlsmith, that study changed
10: the landscape.
0: Or as Elliot Aronson calls it.
10: The single most important experiment ever done in social psychology.
0: So we know about Festinger, but who's Merrill Carlsmith? He was actually a college senior who took a class with Festinger and came up with the idea for the study as his final paper. Can you imagine being a college senior and coming up with a study that rocks an entire academic discipline? I have a PhD and I'm still working on that.
10: I actually worked with Merrill Carlsmith to, to bring him up to speed as an experimenter because he was a, a pretty um stiff guy when he was an undergraduate. Uh he got a lot better. Um he became my graduate student at Harvard. So, you know, we, we stayed together. But as an undergraduate, I knew him and liked him at Stanford when I was a first year graduate student there. And uh, so I worked with him. I trained him to be an effective experimenter. Um, and we knew it at the time. We thought, you know, I wasn't sure this, that experiment would work, but I understood the theory. And when that, when that, those results were coming out, it was very exciting.
0: Okay, so what is this study and, and why did it change the game? Let's go back to Stanford University in the late 50s. students in the Intro to Psychology course had the chance to sign up for all sorts of psychology studies. One of them was listed as a two-hour study on quote, measures of performance. Why anyone would choose that one is beyond me, but they got a bunch of students to sign up. When a student would arrive, he'd sit down at a table and was given a bunch of spools. His task? Take 12 spools put them on a tray, one at a time, using just one hand, then empty the tray and do it all over again for half an hour, 30 minutes, of putting spools on a tray, emptying the tray, putting spools back on the tray, emptying the tray, putting spools back on the tray, emptying the tray. Oh, and the fun had only just begun because the experimenter then took the spools away and gave the student a board with 48 square pegs. These pegs were like little knobs that you could turn. So for the next half hour, the student would turn each of these little 48 pegs a quarter turn, then start back at the beginning and rotate them all a quarter turn again, then go back to the beginning, another set of quarter turns back to the beginning one And what was the point of all of this spool organizing and peg turning? The point was just to give everyone an unpleasant experience. These researchers were very kind. (laughs) After spending an hour silently doing monotonous, repetitive tasks for no reason, anybody would have to be thinking, this has got to be the most boring hour of my whole life. But the experiment had only just started cooking. Because when the student finishes, the experimenter has one more favor to ask. He starts by debriefing the participant.
4: Okay, well that's all we have in the experiment itself. I'd like to explain what this has been all about so you'll have some idea of why you were doing this. The way the experiment is set up is this.
0: The experimenter explains that they're studying how people's expectations affect their performance on mundane activities. So sometimes, apparently, they have an actor pretend to be another student who just took the experiment, and this actor tells the next participant that the experiment is actually really fun and interesting, leading them to expect to have a good time. But they ran into a little issue. Now, I have a sort of strange thing to ask you. The
4: thing is, the person who normally does this for us couldn't do it today, he just phoned in and something or other came up for him, so we've been looking around for someone that we could hire to do it for us, we've got someone waiting who's supposed to be in that other condition, and we were wondering if you could be our actor today, and if you're willing to do this for us, we'd like to hire you to do it now and then be on call in the future, if something like this should ever happen again, do
0: you think he could do that for us? So, just to be clear, the idea is that the person who just spent an hour doing a mind-numbing, painfully boring study is about to go out and tell the next participant that the whole thing was actually really fun, and that's going to make for some dissonance. In other words, thought number one is going to be that they just did the world's most boring study, and thought number two will be that they told somebody that it was actually really fun. These are inconsistent. Telling someone that a study is fun doesn't logically follow from believing that the study is actually boring. But hang on, there's one more detail I haven't told you yet. When the experimenter is asking the student to be their substitute actor, sometimes he sweetens the deal.
4: We could pay you a dollar for doing this for us.
0: But sometimes, he says... We could pay you
4: $20 for doing this for us.
0: Now, remember, this is 1959. If we adjust for inflation, a dollar then is like $9 now, but $20 then is more like $180 now. So these students are either getting paid a piddly amount of money to lie to another student, to tell them that they had an amazing time in the study, or they're making bank. Pulling in a ton of money to tell the same lie. Okay, so the student got a dollar or twenty dollars, told the next participant that he had a ball putting spools on a tray, and as far as he's concerned, study's over. Mm, But the ruse kept going, because the experimenter said that the psychology department had been interviewing a handful of students who participated in research studies, apparently just to see how the research projects were going. So, after everything seemed to be done, the student walked to another office to answer some questions about the study. The interviewer, who apparently had no connection to the boring study at all, asked a few simple questions about how interesting the activities were and whether they'd be interested in signing up again. If we go back to our dissonant thoughts, believing the study is boring, but also having told someone it was fun, How might people reduce that dissonance and feel okay? Well, if you got a ton of money to do it, you could rationalize the inconsistency, thinking, sure, I said it was fun, but I got paid a lot to say that. And so when they got to the interviewer's office, the students who had been paid $20 were happy to say, oh yeah, that study? uh, Garbage. (laughs) Not at all interesting or fun. But what if you only got a measly dollar? That's not enough to justify the fact that you lied. You're still stuck with the dissonance of saying one thing but believing another. How can you bring back some consistency into your brain? Well, you can't take back what you said. But if you could convince yourself that the study was actually pretty interesting then what you said to that poor student is actually what you believed. You would have said it even if you got nothing. And sure enough, when they got to the interviewer's office, the students who only got paid a dollar said the study was interesting, and they'd happily participate in another one like it. Okay, so this study is a powerful test of cognitive dissonance theory. It created dissonance for the participants by making them believe one thing, but say another. And showed that when dissonance can't be reduced any other way, people will change their own beliefs to make the dissonance go away. But why is it...
10: The single most important experiment ever done in social psychology...
0: Well, at the time, these findings challenged psychology's primary way of understanding things. Back then, psychologists were focused on how people's behavior is reinforced by rewards. The bigger the reward, the better we learn. Probably the most famous psychologist who talked about reward and reinforcement was B.F. Skinner. He designed these simple tools to give pigeons some food as a reward for performing some action. And after rewarding the right behavior over and over and over again, he could train pigeons to do all sorts of things. I've tried the same with my cat, but uh, I'm not having as much luck. The basic idea, though, championed by Skinner and his pigeons, was that we learn to do things we are rewarded for. We call it reinforcement theory.
8: Everybody believes that rewards are critical to motivating behavior. Now Festinger and Carlsmith callsmith come and say, no, rewards actually can reduce motivation. And then you, you find major players in the field going after the theory, trying to show you why it was wrong.
0: The problem was that it was the people who got the smallest rewards, just one dollar, who ended up liking the whole study the most. That was not okay with reinforcement theory. But in hindsight, it's clear that Festinger was onto something. And the study is so important because he was bold enough to confront psychology's assumptions with data to prove his theory.
10: And I actually talked to Fred Skinner about this a few years later when I was uh, teaching at Harvard and he couldn't really explain it. He really couldn't explain it. He tried. We had lunch together just once. And he thought, I'll, I'll come up with an answer that in terms of reinforcement theory, and I'll give you a call. And he never did give me a call <laughs>
0: that's going to do it for this episode of opinion sciences bonus best of 2020 episode thank you truly deeply thank you to every single person who appeared on this show from people who maybe did short interviews that started off an episode or or people who i only took a, a clip or two from for longer episodes and people who gave me all sorts of time for uh full interviews Every one of you, thank you so much. It was a real blast this year doing it, and I look forward to, to 2021 and, and and the kinds of conversations we'll get to have then as this podcast grows and we explore new topics together. You can subscribe to Opinion Science anywhere you get podcasts. You can like us on Facebook uh, or Twitter. Follow us on Twitter, I guess is what you call it, at Opinion Sci Pod. Um and, and you know what? One thing, shout out to Tim Hip. He's the guy who transcribes the episodes of this podcast. This one's not getting transcribed so he might never hear this. <laughs> but I've said thank you to him a million times when when the episode with Dr. Fia Salter came out there were you know as it was getting shared a lot at the moment, someone reached out to ask if there were transcripts available for for someone who who, who is hard of hearing or is otherwise inclined to, to read a transcript and I had to say ah you know no I, I i haven't i want to but i haven't and so i got a transcript done just from a transcription service and and somehow or another i, I sort of found out about this guy who does independent transcription for podcasts and he's just great so if, i don't know if you have a need for podcast transcription tim hip is your guy i i really enjoyed being able to make transcripts available i don't know how widely they're used or or read but i hope you know if you're a teacher or if you uh, work with Um, someone or if you are someone for whom transcripts would be really useful almost every episode of uh, Opinion Science thus far has a transcript available and you can find it at opinionsciencepodcast.com which is also where you can find all all sorts of other stuff for this show okay alright this this is a long episode so I'm going to cut it off here Uh, thank you for being here thank you for spending this time with me and uh, see you next week actually for more Opinion Science Bye bye okay.